Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. We are going to continue our summer in the Psalms. Today we're going to be in Psalm 37. So if you have your Bible, open up. If you don't have one, no big deal. It'll be on the screen for you. What we're going to do is we're going to read the first nine verses which is the first five stanzas, and you're like, okay, why does that matter? It's going to be important today as we learn the structure of the psalm and and how David, how the Spirit guided David to write this out. And I'm glad Danny pointed out in the last couple weeks the literary real estate, as he called it, that God devoted to uh, poetry in the Bible, because I think sometimes we neglect it. Sometimes those are the most neglected books in the Bible. And uh, we're going to just start in Psalm 37 today in verses 1 through 9. So let's read it. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass, and they will wither like green herb. You want to flip that? If not, I can read it. Just one moment. No, there we go. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Remember that last phrase, he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I don't know about any of you. When you were singing about waiting today, did any of you think, okay, I'll wait on you, but in my timing? Anyone else? Am I the only degenerate? Did anyone else just think, wait upon you, but really in my timing? We'll see this this wait throughout the psalm today. What does it mean to wait on him? Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Now you've kind of been introduced to the structure of the Psalms. It's the eighth longest Psalm in the Bible. It's 40 verses, and thanks to Brad for giving me something with 40 verses. No, we, like I said, the first nine will be representative of the whole Psalm, and we'll see that. Now if you would, I want you to think of this Psalm in a linear fashion today, if I could ask you to do that. So over here is the first stanza. And over here is the 22nd stanza. Now, for you mathletes, which one is this? Oh, my goodness. Let's review. This is one. Over there is 22. So right here, we would have which stanza? 11. There we go. Thank you for the participation. Why is that going to be important? You'll see in a second. But you'll see over here, 
the way this psalm, the way that God designed it, he guided David to write it. He used the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet to start that stanza. And you go all the way through the Hebrew alphabet with 22 letters, and over here, he used the 22nd letter of the Hebrew alphabet to start that last stanza. And it's an acrostic poem. It's extremely well-designed. And for those of you that start learning your Bible and start really uh, learning even poetry, you'll see that even people that are not saved, that they don't reverence the Bible as the Word of God, they will say the Bible is a literary masterpiece. These men, even some of them not so learned in their time, wrote literary masterpieces, part of the magnificence of the Bible. Now, in this psalm, we're going to see two main ideas contrasted, two ideas, two concepts, and even two actions, because if you think about this, ideas and concepts, they will always flush out, they will always manifest themselves in actions, will they not? What we think about is what we do. These two main contrasts are fretting versus trusting, and we'll talk about fretting here in just a minute. Some of you, we don't use that in our our language, our vernacular. You might have heard maybe your parents or your grandparents say, don't fret. We don't use that very often, and we'll see why that was translated and what it means, but you get the first contrast in fretting versus trusting, and the second one, punishment for the wicked, amen, and favor for the righteous. We're going to see that. You say, "Well, well, how do you know? Well, here it is. Fretting versus trusting. Stanza one, stanza two, stanza three, stanza four, stanza five, stanza 13, 17, and 22 talk about the concept in the contrast of fretting versus trusting. Well, fretting versus trusting in God, being patient and waiting for him being still, delighting in him. There are synonymous terms used in this. The last one is amazing. You'll see it throughout, which is the main, and you'll see how these relate to one another. Punishment for the wicked in the first, in the fifth, in the sixth, in the seventh, in the eighth, in the ninth, in the tenth, in the eleventh, in the twelfth, the thirteenth, the fourteenth, the fifteenth, the sixteenth, the eighteenth, the nineteenth, the twenty-first, twenty-second. Do you think he's trying to drive a point home? The wicked will not prosper long term. That's the difficult part sometimes for us because sometimes we tend to think in the short term. And what's great in every single one of those we went through, it's not only that the wicked won't prosper, it's that there is favor for the righteous. The person who God looks at and says that is a righteous person, not by what they do, but because of you and I having the righteousness of Christ. I hope you understand that this morning, that the reason if you're a follower of Christ, the reason you're righteous is because God the Father looks and he sees the righteousness of Christ on you that he took, when he took your sin, he gave you his righteousness. That is why we will be able to stand before God one day. That is why all the way through this psalm, you will be able to think, that's why I receive favor, is because he sees me as righteous. Not necessarily favor for what I do, but because the righteousness of Christ. So the historical setting of this psalm, this would have been King David on his throne. And in the psalm, he tells us it was when he was an an older man. David had been through a lot in his life. And we see this as 
that one thing that's mentioned six times, and we're going to see one of these especially today, is the dwelling in the land. I don't know if you caught that in some of those, those, those first nine verses, the first five stanzas that we read. But he's going to talk about that six times consistently, like almost like, like consistently throughout this psalm, inheriting or dwelling in the land. And for you and I, we're like, yeah, I mean, I live in the United States. What's the big deal? You have to understand for the historical setting of the Israelites, what this would have meant to them. The theme of Genesis, and I would even say the theme of the Old Testament, is God's covenant faithfulness. You have to understand, his people weren't always faithful, were they? In fact, they had a long history of trust issues. You think, well, what do you mean? Well, he covenants them this land, and they were going to be a great people, and they were going to bless the world. And a few hundred years later, he remembers that covenant. It's not like he had forgotten, but it says in Exodus that he remembered his people. And he acted according to what he covenanted with them. And he says, I am going to go and deliver them from Egypt. If you remember the the ten plagues and how he drives them out, and what a great story that is, and the miracles and the power of God that are executed to get the, the children of Israel out of Egypt so that he can move them to the land that he promised them, he gets them out, and what happens three days later? We want to go back. God's not in charge. He doesn't love us. He's not taking care of us. Three days! And then it continues. It's not like they were like, okay, we repent. We know you're, gonna, we know you're with us. We know you're powerful. We know you're going to take care of us. It was like time after time after time. And it says in Numbers that God was counting. He says, 10 times now. You've just forgotten what I did for you. How do you forget so easily? And I think, what a stupid, ignorant, unfaithful people. And then I evaluate my own life. Anyone else? God is faithful over and over and over in our lives. And then we go, yeah, I don't know if I can trust you with that. The historical setting of the Psalms and how they would have read it and how they would have been uh, so um, tempted to fret and not trust in him because of what they saw in the short term. So the connection is the people set apart to live in the world, but not of it. See, what we have in common with Israel is he had set them apart to be a special people, not because they were special, so that they could bless the world, so that he could use them to bless the world. What we have in common with Israel sometimes is we think, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of special. I mean, like God chose us. He set us apart. And we become so exclusive like the nation of Israel did. They forgot that they were blessed to be a blessing, that God was using them so that he could win the world. And so this people to be set apart, Israel always wanted to be like the surrounding nations. In fact, if you just think about who wrote this psalm, King David, the reason they chose Saul, the king before him, was because that's who the other nations would have chosen. He was tall. He was handsome. Who was the king that God had intended to be the king of Israel? David, a little ruddy shepherd out in the field. Had many older brothers that the nation would have selected before him. Because that's not what they were doing. They were picking according to what the surrounding nations wanted to be like. And if you read through the history of Israel, it's always like, why are you idolatrous? Why do you want to be like them? 
And I think for Israel sometimes they'd be like, well, what benefit is the law? What benefit is having the relationship with God when all these other nations, they prosper? And that looks like so much fun. That looks like the way I want to live. I want to live like they live. And that was Israel's downfall. And I think about it for us, and isn't it so similar? So in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I always forget, go the opposite way because we read left to right. I hope you understand that if I was doing this, we understood the Hebrew Bible, we would have started right to left. So you start all the way over here in the Gospels, and you work your way almost all the way to the end. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, almost all the way to the end, and then you get the last week of Christ and what he went through on this earth. The Gospel of John is different because you start all the way at the beginning of John, and all of a sudden you get halfway through the Gospel of John, and it's this expanded version of the last week of Christ. And it details such intimate times between Christ and his disciples. It's such an intimate time between him and God the Father. And you get this picture of the last week of Christ. You actually get this information about how Jesus thought and how he interacted with the disciples. And it's just so beautiful. And saying that, 17 is part of this. And he says this. He says, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Just like Israel, we desire to be like the surrounding nations. The connection in this psalm in those two major things, fretting versus trusting, in the judgment of the wicked, the punishment of the wicked versus the favor for the righteous, we're going to see how that plays out in our world. And he says in verse 18, if you could flip that back real quick, he says, and you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. When you leave here every week, pretty much, what is the benediction? Go be with people as sent people, Right? Knowing this, that you're not of the world, you're in the world, but you're not of it. That's our first major contrast for us. Fretting versus trusting, righteousness being rewarded and favored versus the punishment of the wicked. But how it translates to us is the way we need to think about it is that we are in the world, we're here, we're not of it. And there's so many other idioms and figures of speech and metaphors used in the Bible that you're not a citizen of this earth. You're a citizen of heaven. You're sent back as an ambassador when you become a believer. There are so many other ways, but if you just think, I'm in it, but I'm not of it, it saves us so much fretting and mistrust. It helps us trust and have faith in God. So yeah, what's fretting? Because when we say fret, some of us think like anxious or anxiety, but it goes so much more than that. It expresses a passionate intensity, a consuming indignation, a passionate frustration, and listen to this, an inquiry about the power and the justice of the rule of God. It is something that gets you torqued up. In fact, the way I have it, the way we use it, I have it on here as getting worked up. And it's kind of when anxiety marries anger, and we have a word for that. It's called angst. 
Anybody ever been there? And it's in regards to the context of this passage, it's getting worked up about evil and why evil succeeds and why evil is benefited, why evil is rewarded. And that when we follow Christ, there are a lot of times where we have to go through difficult times and people that are living like hell seem to be having a lot of fun and they're okay. And we get worked up you think, what, what gets you worked up? And I just put some examples on here. How about governments? And Well, we're not going to touch ours. We won't go there today. Maybe a little bit. I'll digress. Governments of the world and how governments oppress the people. Listen, I don't know if you understand that, but this church and one of the core values is dealing with college students and young people. And you just got to understand, they are so tempted to get worked up about these things. If you remember when you're younger, you are a little bit more idealistic before the world beats you down into being realistic. Anybody with me? And so there's these issues that they can get worked up about, the oppression in governments and how people are treated. And it seems like the United States has been involved for a long time of going and, and taking away wrong one regime, and then all of a sudden we get to see the new regime of righteousness, right? Oh, oh no, that regime is usually just as bad. And then we get more worked up. Human rights violations. And I'll just say this really quick about our country. Some of the things that people get so worked up about, it's because they love the Constitution more than they do Christ. I hope that never is named among us. That we, that we appreciate the Constitution, we love it, but we know its value, and that it didn't come from Christ, but the Word of God did. That will help you sort out a lot of issues in this world and it'll provide a lot of comfort and save you from a lot of angst and a lot of fret. How about institutions? If you have ever been at work, you know that liars excel, that cheats prosper. I mean, how many of you guys have professors that are anti-God and they mock Christians and yet they have tenure? They get summers off? They get to mock you? no consequences. It just doesn't seem right. Relationships, abusers who seem to prosper. There are many of you in here that were hurt and you were abused and you look at the person who did it and you think, how this side of heaven, why don't they suffer? I want them to suffer. And wasn't the series on forgiveness so good? Helping many of us work through those issues. How many of you have been run over by a narcissist and then they made you feel like it was your fault for getting run over? Fornicators having fun? Listen, this is, this is for everyone. But this is a church full of young people. It sure does seem fun, right? IG, TikTok, the abilities of Snap. Sure seems fun. I'll just put it this way. Every time you desire, you desire to step outside of the way that God intended for, to have sex and marriage, Anytime you decide, okay, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. I'm going to step outside of that. I know he designed sex, but we've figured something else out that will benefit us more. 
every time you step out of that, there will be consequences that you might not see now, but the price tag of that is going to be heavy. We see people doing that and thinking, why? Think about religion, false religions that te- teach people they need to work their way to God. Atheists, agnostics. Well, they seem to be having, it seems like they're okay. What about even Christianity? False teachers that come in and say, well, if you do this, you'll have this. You can work more favor to God. The more faith you have, the more he'll bless. All of these things in the, the health, wealth, gospel, we see all these things in Christianity. Well, why are they successful? That guy's got a jet. I would love to have a jet, right? God says, think of it longer. I'll put it this way. When 80 years is our life perspective on the framework of time. When 80 years is our life perspective on the framework of time, we fret. And in verse 8, it says, fretting leads to evil. Whenever 80 years is like it, like that is it, our decisions will always be made based on now. And now can be so deceptive, can it not? Have you ever just thought about why he says, I want you to live by faith and not by sight? Well, first of all, you only see 50% of reality. For those of you math geeks, yes, I did just quantify it. I can't, I know, okay? But just think about this. 50% of reality is what you see. Think about the 50% of reality that's a spiritual world that if you're not anywhere in touch with the Holy Spirit, you are just oblivious to. There's a spiritual war going on around you. But even just think about it in time. Think about it in time. If you're just living by what you see, you're totally, you can't even believe Psalm 37. You're like, I don't, that doesn't sound right. Because not only talking about he will take care of them When they're in the land, there's definitely an eschatological and end times of future for the nation of Israel. And he says, as Christians, you have the same. When 80 years is our life perspective, we will fret. Psalm 37, if if you haven't ever read through it and noticed this, it has a really close connection in the New Testament. And it surprised me. I'd never noticed this before I started studying for this. Psalm 37 is one of the verses, one of the teachings that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you start digging through Psalm 37, you'll find even more and more. I'm not so for sure if Jesus didn't design his whole Sermon on the Mount off of Psalm 37. And it wasn't just like one sermon that he preached one time, like I'll probably, I'll never preach this again after next hour, right? This was a common ethic, a common core teaching of Jesus. So what he said on the Sermon on the Mount, he was saying all the time. This is his common teaching. And it was so, so counterculture. It was so just, it was a counterculture kingdom manifesto. Everything that you could work, all the problems you can solve in life, Jesus would be like, oh, no, 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 that's not how you solve it. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and you're like, well, what do you mean being meek, I'll benefit? What do you mean being a person of peace, I'll benefit? It doesn't seem like that. I said from the beginning, we, we like Israel, like to be like the surrounding nations, and we have to realize that we are, we're in the world, but we're not of it. We're a copy culture. When Christ has called us to be counterculture, 
and I know how tough it is. I want to talk about parenting in this context for just a minute. Now, if I were sitting out there like many of you parents, I'd be like, listen, Christianing is hard enough. <laughs> like, in this context, being in the world but not of it. Now you're going to hit me with parenting? Yeah. Because for us individually, is it not more difficult to not be colored by the world, to not want to be like the world because we see the benefits? But parenting, I would say all the parents in here, we want our kids to be like Jesus, do we not? But we don't want them to be weird. Am I lying? We don't want our kid to be weird. We don't want him to be ever made fun of. We don't want him to ever be mocked. We don't. Listen, if you're a third and fifth grader in here this morning, listen to what I'm telling you. No matter what anyone else tells you, following Jesus makes you a little odd. Because what the world that you're living in will tell you the answer to certain problems or questions, and Jesus says that's not the answer. Sometimes it's the exact opposite. Someone mocks you and makes fun of you. Well, you should say something back and teach them their place. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't say anything. Actually, pray for them. And if you think of them as an enemy, guess what? You love them. When the world over here says, you don't love your enemies, you hate them. Jesus says, no, 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 uh-uh, no. We're going we're gonna to love our enemies. And as parents, we don't want that for them. Let me just encourage you this morning. I want my kid to be like Jesus. I know I struggle with wanting them to fit in in this world. Just understand, Jesus never expects them to fit in in this world. Doesn't mean they have to be a radical freak. I think you understand what I'm saying. Though, for some of you, that's exactly what they'll be. The times are getting worse and worse. We'll talk about it here in a minute. And as parents, we're going to have to make a decision. Will we train them up in the way they should go so that if this nation does keep declining in its favor towards Christianity and religious freedom, what do we want for them? Do we want them to lean to this side so that they're comfortable, they're not made fun of, or do we want them to lean to this side so they can impact the world for Jesus? Think of it this way. Right before what we read in John 17 about being in the world but not of it, in John 14, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in the context of him leaving and going to prepare a place for us. Amen? He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now just imagine with me, you're his disciples, you follow him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And all of a sudden, after Pentecost, he stay on earth for 40 days, and you see him disappear up in the clouds. Wouldn't you be thinking, wait a second, the way, the truth, and the life just left. Right? In the context of parenting, you want them to be like Jesus. He replaced himself. If you don't know this, if you read through Psalm 37, it uses the, 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 the term, the word way. And it's an identity lifestyle used all the way through Psalms, all the way through Proverbs, and really all the way throughout the rest of the Bible. In fact, in the early chapters of Acts, before Christians were called Christians, you do realize that was a derogatory term. It meant little Christ, and they were being made fun of. People didn't know what to call them. And so they were just like, people of that 
of that way. It was an identity lifestyle. They were identified by the lifestyle that they led. People of that way. You know, we have, we have that today in the church. You want your kids to be in this world but not of it? They need a home base with other people. Christianity was never meant to be lived in isolation. You can't do the Christian life alone. God created people to, have, to be friends and to have community so that we can do life the way that Jesus Christ intended us to live it. The truth. We read in John 17 what the truth is. He replaced himself with the local church, with the church, and he says, I replaced myself with the word of God. You have a complete revelation of God speaking to you. I just wish God would talk to me. I wish he would tell me what to do. Usually, major life decisions, he's told you what to do. The details, he's just like, I'll just pick. I'll give you the desire of your heart. We just read it. In fact, some of the people in our city group the other day were like, so kind of asking me about major life decisions, me and Natalia, and how we, I was like, yeah, I've never prayed about a house we bought. I don't think God cares where I live, but I have prayed about me being an impact in this world. And if you don't, listen, if that's not for you, if you want to pray about what house you buy, be my guest. I just think there's a lot of things in this life that I'll just give you the desires of your heart. Follow me. Follow me. If you want that house, okay. If it's wise within your budget, whatever, just okay. So the local church, Hill City, I hope that you are training your kids that this is important. Did I say anything about attendance? You got to be here four weeks out of four weeks. And if it's like July, it's got five weeks, you got to be here. Your kids have to grow up knowing that the local church and their Christian community is vital. It's not just something you do. It's not just a consumer-based mentality where you're just like, well, let's go see what we can get from church. And whenever you don't get something from church, all of a sudden you're just like, yeah, let's just go somewhere else. It's about digging in and getting invested. It's about the word of God. You say the way, the truth, and the life. What about the life? He said, just wait. I'm going to send my spirit back. Jesus Christ replaced himself when he left. You want your kids to be like Jesus? Please, listen to me. Make those three things a priority in their life. I'll just give you a quick personal testimony. I was probably nine or ten years old. I heard my mom praying out loud that I would grow up and be a lover of his word. Six, seven years later, I literally fell in love with this book. Probably a coincidence, right? Listen, parents, these are the things we do. The church, the word of God, and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to pray, and be in the spirit. Those are the things we do so that our kids can be in it, but not of it. Those are the things that we, that we equip them with so that when it does get a little froggy, they can make it through. Which leads us into the next one. It doesn't get any better on this earth necessarily for us. In, not of. The next one is persecuted, not forsaken. Persecuted, not forsaken. And, you know, the, the hard part for us is that it's, it's not getting any better. There are people that believe that we're bringing in the kingdom. Let me just tell you, that's not what the Bible teaches. The days are going to get darker and darker, more difficult and more difficult for believers. 
Verse 12, it says the wicked plot against the righteous. Verse 14 of Psalm 37 said they bring down the poor and needy. They slay those ways who's upright. Verse 32 says they seek to kill the righteous. The days are coming no longer simply mocked for our beliefs, but what we teach today, what I've said today, will be hate speech and it will be intolerance. And it will not be tolerated. And if you think, well, I think that's going to be a long ways away, look how quickly we've moved, and it can move even exponentially quicker. This is me. This is conjecture. It's not in the Word of God. I believe that within my children's lifetime, what I'm saying up here, barring God just putting his finger on this planet, on this country, I believe, you can't say that, that's hate speech. How can you tell somebody they're going to be separated from God for eternity? How can you teach there's a hell? How can you teach that God designed sex and that anything outside of that is sin? Listen, I'm just telling you the days are coming. Preparing ourselves and our children and the ones that we have influence over, the people we're discipling, to be able to withstand that and to handle that, that is a tough job. But let me just tell you, in all of that, you read Psalm 37, you're like, man, it seems like the wicked prosper, the wicked are going to get their day, but I said, remember that phrase, God will act. This is encouraging. God's favor for the righteous, God acting on our behalf in the second, in the third, in the ninth, in the tenth, in the thirteenth, in the fifteenth and sixteenth, in the seventeenth, in the eighteenth, in the nineteenth, in the twenty-first, in the twenty-second. He says, I will act on behalf of my saints the people that love me, I will act on them. And listen, read some of these. Delight yourself in the Lord. I will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in him and he will act. The Lord upholds the righteous. He knows the days of the blameless. The heritage will remain forever. Your steps are established by the Lord. You won't be forsaken. You'll dwell forever. The law of God is in your heart. Your steps won't slip. The Lord won't abandon you. You wait for the Lord and you keep his way and he will exalt you. The future for the man of peace in the 22nd stanza we'll see in just a second. Deuteronomy 31 says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And the writer of Hebrews quotes that. It's a promise that I hope that through the difficulties of this world, it helps get us through it. When he gave us his spirit, it says, yeah, that spirit will be with you till the end of the world. And you can take that to mean the age, the geography, the Spirit of God will not leave us as believers. We take refuge in that. We have an eternal inheritance. That's why we have to have an eternal perspective. When your perspective doesn't match your inheritance, you get confused. See, we've got the down payment on the inheritance now with the Holy Spirit and so many other things. But one day we get the full benefit of what God's given us. A future forever. And when we think about eternity, it basically breaks our minds, does it not? Our finite minds cannot comprehend. It takes faith to believe for eternity future. I'm with God in love and harmony and peace and joy. If you are just in here for the first time, if you're like, man, you seem kind of intense, it's because there's an urgency 
and it's an intense message. Matthew 28 says this. It says, don't fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And we'll close by reading the 22nd stanza in Psalm 37. The 22nd stanza, Psalm 37. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He will act. He is the stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and he delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take their refuge in him. In, not of, persecuted, not forsaken. We have an amazing future in him. And the reason we have the future in him is because of what Christ did for us. When you think about what Christ did for you, when somebody were to, if they were to ever ask you, what, what's this whole you going to heaven and, and knowing that you're living for eternity? The beginning of your sentence never starts with, well, I. It starts with Jesus and what he did.